Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Chapter 28, Part 2 In the autumn, new trials and experiences came to Meg. Sally Moffat renewed her friendship, was always running out for a dish of gossip at the little house, or inviting that poor dear to come in and spend the day at the big house. It was pleasant, for in dull weather Meg often felt lonely. All were busy at home, John absent till night, and nothing to do, but sew or read or potter about. So it naturally fell out that Meg got into the way of gadding and gossiping with her friend. Seeing Sally's pretty things made her long for such, and pity herself because she had not got them. Sally was very kind, and often offered her the coveted trifles, but Meg declined them, knowing that John wouldn't like it. And then this foolish little woman went and did what John disliked, even worse. She knew her husband's income, and she loved to feel that he trusted her, not only with his happiness, but what some men seemed to value more, his money. She knew where it was, was free to take what she liked, and all he asked was that she should keep account of every penny, pay bills once a month, and remember she was a poor man's wife. Till now she had done well, been prudent and exact, kept her little account books neatly, and showed them to him monthly without fear. But that autumn, the serpent got into Meg's paradise and tempted her like many a modern Eve, not with apples, but with dress. Meg didn't like to be pitied and made to feel poor. It irritated her, but she was ashamed to confess it, and now and then she tried to console herself by buying something pretty, so that Sally needn't think she had to economize. She always felt wicked after it, for the pretty things were seldom necessaries, but then... They cost so little it wasn't worth worrying about. So the trifles increased unconsciously, and in the shopping excursions she was no longer a passive looker-on. But the trifles cost more than one would imagine, and when she cast up her accounts at the end of the month, the sum total rather scared her. John was busy that month and left the bills to her. The next month he was absent, but the third he had a grand quarterly settling up, and Meg never forgot it. A few days before, she had done a dreadful thing, and it weighed upon her conscience. Sally had been buying silks, and Meg longed for a new one, just a handsome light one for parties. Her black silk was so common, and thin things for evening wear were only proper for girls. Aunt March usually gave the sisters a present of $25 apiece at New Year's. That was only a month to wait, and here was a lovely violet silk going at a bargain, 
and she had the money, if she only dared to take it. John always said what was his was hers, but would he think it right to spend not only the prospective five-and-twenty, but another five-and-twenty out of the household fund? That was the question. Sally had urged her to do it, had offered to lend the money, and with the best intentions in life had tempted Meg beyond her strength. In an evil moment, the shopman held up the lovely, shimmering folds and said, "'A bargain, I assure you, ma'am.' She answered, "'I'll take it,' and it was cut off and paid for, and Sally had exulted, and she had laughed as if it were a thing of no consequence, and driven away, feeling as if she had stolen something, and the police were after her. When she got home, she tried to assuage the pangs of remorse by spreading forth the lovely silk, but it looked less silvery now. Didn't become her, after all, and the words fifty dollars seemed stamped like a pattern down each breath. She put it away, but it haunted her, not delightfully as a new dress should, but dreadfully like the ghost of a folly that was not easily laid. When John got out his books that night, Meg's heart sank, and for the first time in her married life, she was afraid of her husband. The kind brown eyes looked as if they could be stern, and though he was unusually merry, she fancied he had found her out, but didn't mean to let her know it. The house bills were all paid, the books all in order. John had praised her and was undoing the old pocketbook, which they called the bank. When Meg, knowing that it was quite empty, stopped his hand, saying nervously, "'You haven't seen my private expense book yet.' "'John never asked to see it, "'but she always insisted on his doing so, "'and used to enjoy his masculine amazement "'at the queer things women wanted, "'and made him guess what piping was, "'demand fiercely the meaning of a hug-me-tight, "'or wonder how a little thing composed of three rosebuds, "'a bit of velvet and a pair of strings, "'could possibly be a bonnet and cost six dollars.' That night, he looked as if he would like the fun of quizzing her figures and pretending to be horrified at her extravagance, as he often did, being particularly proud of his prudent wife. The little book was brought slowly out and laid down before him. Meg got behind his chair under pretense of smoothing the wrinkles out of his tired forehead, and standing there, she said, with her panic increasing with every word, "'John, dear, I'm ashamed to show you my book, "'for I've really been dreadfully extravagant lately. "'I go about so much, I must have things, you know, "'and Sally advised my getting it, so I did, "'and my New Year's money will partly pay for it, "'but I was sorry after I had done it, "'for I knew you'd think it was wrong in me.' "'John laughed and drew her round beside him, "'saying good-humouredly, "'Don't go and hide.' I won't beat you if you have got a pair of killing boots. I'm rather proud of my wife's feet and don't mind if she does pay eight or nine dollars for her boots if they're good ones. That had been one of her last trifles, and John's eye had fallen on it as he spoke. Oh, what will he say when he comes to that awful fifty dollars, thought Meg with a shiver. It's worse than boots. It's a silk dress, she said, with the calmness of desperation, for she wanted the worst over. "'Well, dear, what is the damned total, as Mr. Mantellini says?' 
That didn't sound like John, and she knew he was looking up at her with the straightforward look that she had always been ready to meet and answer with one as frank till now. She turned the page and her head at the same time, pointing to the sum which would have been bad enough without the fifty, but which was appalling to her with that added. For a minute the room was very still. Then John said slowly, but she could feel it cost him an effort to express no displeasure. Well, I don't know that fifty is much for a dress, with all the furbelows and notions you have to finish it off these days. It isn't made or trimmed, sighed Meg, faintly, for a sudden recollection of the cost, still to be incurred, quite overwhelmed her. Twenty-five yards of silk seems a good deal to cover one small woman, but I've no doubt my wife will look as fine as Ned Moffat's when she gets it on, said John dryly. I know you are angry, John, but I can't help it. I don't mean to waste your money, and I didn't think those little things would count up so. I can't resist them when I see Sally buying all she wants and pitying me because I don't. I try to be contented, but it is hard, and I'm tired of being poor. The last words were spoken so low she thought he did not hear them, but he did, and they wounded him deeply, for he had denied himself many pleasures for Meg's sake. She could have bitten her tongue out the minute she had said it, for John pushed the books away and got up, saying with a little quiver in his voice, "'I was afraid of this. I do my best, Meg.' If he had scolded her or even shaken her, it would not have broken her heart like those few words. She ran to him and held him close, crying with repentant tears, "'Oh, John, my dear, kind, hard-working boy, I didn't mean it. I was so wicked, so untrue and ungrateful. How could I say it? Oh, how could I say it?' He was very kind, forgave her readily, and did not utter one reproach. But Meg knew that she had done and said a thing which would not be forgotten soon, although he might never allude to it again. She had promised to love him for better or worse, and then she, his wife, had reproached him with his poverty after spending his earnings recklessly. It was dreadful. And the worst of it was John went on so quietly afterward, just as if nothing had happened, except that he stayed in town later, and worked at night when she had gone to cry herself to sleep. A week of remorse nearly made Meg sick, and the discovery that John had countermanded the order for his new greatcoat reduced her to a state of despair which was pathetic to behold. He had simply said, in answer to her surprised inquiries as to the change, "'I can't afford it, my dear.' Meg said no more, but a few minutes after he found her in the hall with her face buried in the old greatcoat, crying as if her heart would break. They had a long talk that night, and Meg learned to love her husband better for his poverty, because it seemed to have made a man of him, given him the strength and courage to fight his own way, and taught him a tender patience with which to bear and comfort the natural longings and failures of those he loved. Next day she put her pride in her pocket went to Sally, told the truth, and asked her to buy the silk as a favor. The good-natured Mrs. Moffat willingly did so, and had the delicacy not to make her a present of it immediately afterward. 
Then Meg ordered home the greatcoat. And when John arrived, she put it on and asked him how he liked her new silk gown. One can imagine what answer he made, how he received his present, and what a blissful state of things ensued. John came home early. Meg gadded no more, and that greatcoat was put on in the morning by a very happy husband, and taken off at night by a most devoted little wife. So the year rolled round, and at midsummer there came to Meg a new experience, the deepest and tenderest of a woman's life. Lori came sneaking into the kitchen of the dovecote one Saturday with an excited face and was received with the clash of cymbals, for Hannah clapped her hands with a saucepan in one and the cover in the other. "'How's the little mama? Where is everybody? Why didn't you tell me before I came home?' began Lori in a loud whisper. "'Happy as a queen, the dear. Every soul of them is upstairs a-worshipping. We didn't want no hurricanes round.' "'Now you go into the parlor, and I'll send him down to you.' "'With which somewhat involved reply, Hannah vanished, chuckling, ecstatically. "'Presently, Joe appeared, proudly bearing a flannel bundle laid forth upon a large pillow. "'Joe's face was very sober, but her eyes twinkled, "'and there was an odd sound in her voice of repressed emotion of some sort. "'Shut your eyes and hold out your arms,' she said invitingly. Lori backed into a corner and put his hands behind him with an imploring gesture. "'No, thank you. I'd rather not. I shall drop it or smash it, as sure as fate.' "'Then you shan't see your nevy,' said Joe, decidedly, turning as if to go. "'I will, I will. Only you must be responsible for damages.' And obeying orders, Lori heroically shut his eyes while something was put into his arm." A peal of laughter from Joe, Amy, Mrs. March, Hannah, and John caused him to open them the next minute to find himself invested with two babies instead of one. No wonder they laughed, for the expression of his face was droll enough to convulse a Quaker as he stood and stared wildly from the unconscious innocence to the hilarious spectators with such dismay that Joe sat down on the floor and screamed. "'Twins by Jupiter!' was all he said for a minute. Then turning to the women with an appealing look that was comically piteous, he added, "'Take them quick, somebody. I'm going to laugh, and I shall drop them.' Joe rescued his babies and marched up and down with one on each arm, as if already initiated into the mysteries of baby-tending, while Lori laughed till the tears ran down his cheeks. "'It's the best joke of the season, isn't it? I wouldn't have told you,' "'for I set my heart on surprising you, "'and I flatter myself I've done it,' said Joe, "'when she got her breath. "'I never was more staggered in my life. "'Isn't it fun? "'Are they boys? "'What are you going to name them? "'Let's have another look. "'Hold me up, Joe, "'for upon my life it's one too many for me,' "'returned Lori, "'regarding the infants with the air of a big, "'benevolent Newfoundland, "'looking at a pair of infantile kittens. "'Boy and girl,' "'Aren't they beauties?' said the proud papa, "'beaming upon the little red squirmers "'as if they were unfledged angels. "'Most remarkable children I ever saw. "'Which is which?' "'And Lori bent like a well-sweep "'to examine the prodigies. "'Amy put a blue ribbon on the boy "'and a pink on the girl, 
French fashion, so you can always tell. Besides, one has blue eyes and one brown. Kiss them, Uncle Teddy, said Wicked Joe. I'm afraid they mightn't like it, began Laurie, with unusual timidity in such matters. Of course they will. They're used to it now. Do it this minute, sir, commanded Joe, fearing he might propose a proxy. Laurie screwed up his face and obeyed with a gingerly peck at each little cheek that produced another laugh and made the babies squeal. There, I knew they didn't like it. That's the boy. See him kick? He hits out with his fist like a good one. Now then, young Brook, pitch into a man of your own size, will you? cried Laurie, delighted with a poke in the face from a tiny fist flapping aimlessly about. He's to be named John Lawrence and the girl Margaret after mother and grandmother. We shall call her Daisy, so as not to have two Megs. And I suppose the Manny will be Jack, unless we find a better name, said Amy, with aunt-like interest. Name him Demi-John, and call him Demi for short, said Laurie. Daisy and Demi, just the thing. I knew Teddy would do it, cried Joe, clapping her hands. Teddy certainly had done it that time, for the babies were Daisy and Demi to the end of the chapter. Phoebe Reads a Mystery is recorded in the studios of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC.